0: Hi, this is Emma Sutherland. Join us on FX Medicine next week where I'll be talking to Dr Jade Tetter about metabolism and weight. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work. And their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hi and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Emma Sutherland and joining us on the line today to discuss cultivating a healthy urinary microbiome is naturopath, acupuncturist and academic, Moira Bradfield-Stratum. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Moira. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Now, unlike the gut microbiome, a healthy vaginal microbiome is characterised by low diversity of microorganisms, combined with lactobacilli dominance, as lactobacilli are essential for the production of lactic acid, which maintains optimal pH of around 4.0. Now, Moira, you've been a frequent guest on the show, and thank you for taking time out to join us again. For those listeners who might not be familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to this area of interest?
1: Yeah, so I've um, been a naturopath for a little while now. i coming up in 21 years and um, I don't know if I had a choice <laughs> to be anything but a naturopath. That's, I think, apart from wanting to be a ballerina at one stage, that's all I wanted to be was (laughs) a naturopath from very early on. Um, So I went into study straight from high school Wow! and, and then straight from university into private practice at that point.
0: Yeah, incredible. But when you were young, what made you interested in becoming a naturopath?
1: many things, I guess. I mean, I grew up in um, beautiful Hobart in Tasmania Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and nature is a big part of being a Tasmanian. And so I I suspect that had a huge influence on me. And also my mother was very big on not always going for, um, you know, more mainstream solutions and looking at how we could possibly support ourselves in other ways. So there was definitely influences in that. Mm. And through high school, I um, did you know interesting things like did some work experience in Gould's apothecary mm. down there. And I also went into health food shops and sat with some naturopaths and at the time, was seeing a Chinese herbalist, so lots of different things like that that sort of cemented that that's what I wanted to do mm. and just really being inspired by um, looking for alternate solutions. Yeah, it's sort of something I haven't reflected on because, as I said, I don't know if I ever wanted to be anything else.
0: Yeah, and obviously you have a very curious mind because I think naturopathy is all about being curious about possibilities and other ways of doing things and other ways of seeing things. Now I want to talk to you about, you know, your specialty in the area of genito urinary health. Why did you decide to head down that path specifically?
1: Yeah, it sort of presented itself to me. It's not something I went seeking at all. I had mm. been in private general practice for maybe fifteen years at that point, and um, had started to see a run of clients in clinics that had unexplainable discharge or mm. recurrent infections and and i found that the approach that i was utilizing was not working okay and and so when i went to to dig in and think about why what i realized is that there was a whole area of health that i really didn't have a knowledge base in um, and so i threw myself into that and realized as that opened up that it was something that i was really interested in mm-hmm. and you know up until that i had no interest in specializing or having a special interest in Anything in, in, you know, it was, I was a general clinician and that was good. Yeah. But this area really ignited my fire. And I think because, you know, there are obviously, I'm a female and yeah. there are aspects of my own health journey that resonated and made sense as mm-hmm. I, I dug into that literature. And, and then I also started to realize that because it wasn't something that we talked about or that we learned about in great detail that my role as an educator, because I had been in education for a long time at that point, was to also how can I take this to other practitioners because this is a really important and overlooked part of health that a huge percentage of our, you know, potential clients or patients actually have issues with then we're not even digging into it or we're too shy to ask those questions.
0: Yeah and I would definitely say that we are undereducated in this space uh, when we go through our training and it is something in clinical practice that patients will come back again and again with the same symptoms and you know we're going to deep dive into all of this but as a practitioner it can be very frustrating when you feel your knowledge is not sufficient and enough to really help these patients get better results
1: yeah definitely I mean I think for me the big realization is that most of it is not an infection yeah <laughs> it was a huge part of it you know so why are we addressing it that way and throwing lots of antimicrobials at it mm. instead of thinking about it in a restorative way
0: yeah it's a very one-dimensional way of thinking about it you're right yeah. now you're also doing your phd so tell us what you're working on I had my Anyone who takes on a PhD? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's
1: been a, quite a journey um, and it's coming to the end of it now. And um, I'm working in the area of recurrent thrush because of all of the things that I was dealing with in clinic, that one has the least amount of answers. Mm. And it certainly is frustrating to see people that have had, you know, 10, 15 years of symptoms that come back on a monthly basis and to have had, you know, a whole barrage of antifungal medications thrown mm. at them both holistically and pharmaceutically, only to have those symptoms return. So I thought, gosh, you know, what can I do in this space? This is the biggest area I think that troubles me, that I want more answers to, that I yeah. think we need to understand better. And so I ended up from the, the genesis of deciding that I wanted to do further study. Um, in meeting my supervisor who also wanted to do some work with some specific compounds mm-hmm. in terms of recurrent thrush from her background. So we're looking at a number of different factors and certainly uh, the, doing a PhD through a pandemic has meant mm-hmm. we've had to pivot numerous times in yeah. how we approach the work. But we're running a clinical trial, seeing if we can reduce the severity and frequency of thrush flares in people who experience recurrent vulvovaginal vaginal candidiasis. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're using an intravaginal application to do that. Okay. And then there's been some side projects that have come out of that as well, because one of the papers that we um, have had published is around the pharmaceutical management of um, recurrent vulvovaginal candidiasis in Australian guidelines. And mm-hmm. what we found was that the treatment you know, is successful whilst people are on it, but there's a really high relapse rate associated with recurrence rush once you've stopped some of those longer-term azole therapies. Mm. And there's also, you know, a huge, like many other, I think, female health conditions, there's also delays to diagnosis, there's mismanagement. There are people that feel like they've not been heard. Mm. So we've also uh, been involved in some semi-structured interviews looking at qualitative data to talk to people that have recurrent thrush as a diagnosis and what they've been experiencing and um, what's come through for them, and there's a lot of you know uncertainty and feeling like they've just not been listened to or supported in their journey. Yeah. And then the third project that we're running is a microbiome study. So we're looking at vaginal and gastrointestinal microbiome of people that have recurrent thrush who have used oral fluconazole therapy either for maintenance, so longer-term um, mm. periods, or four times or more in the last 12 months, and comparing that to people who are essentially healthy controls to see if there are differences in the microbiome because there's no long-term data on what the impacts of these pharmaceuticals are on those microbiome sites. Mm. And there's also some disparities when we look at microbiome research between what constitutes healthy or whether there are bacterial shifts associated with these primarily what we believe are fungal conditions mm-hmm. and there's not necessarily any data on the gut microbiome people that have recurrence rash either despite you know long-held beliefs that candida is in the gut and that's why it ends up in the vagina etc so we were looking at statistics of carriage as well for candida on a gut level as well as obviously microbiome trends in the gut are associated there
0: I think I cannot wait for that to (laughs) your research to be released. I'm already uh, incredibly fascinated. And I think that recurrent thrush. To me, it's a little bit like endometriosis, in as far as patients come in and they feel that they haven't been heard, they've been misdiagnosed, and they're frustrated as anything with this recurrent uh, set of symptoms that they're experiencing. So, you know, anything that sheds light in this space is going to make profound impacts on the experience these women have.
1: Yeah, I hope so, because they deserve it. Mm. Um, And, you know, there's certainly aspects of recurrent thrush that makes it look like more of a syndrome than an infection, but we still see it being treated as, you know, episodic infections rather than looking at whole basis of it. So, you know, there's certainly factors associated with things like allergy, there are genetic components that they're identified, there are certainly hormonal risk points mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, those things are not often acknowledged or explained to people. And, and we don't necessarily have the interventions, particularly in a, a medication sense that can mm-hmm. come in and even impact those things. So, you know, there's lots of gaps in the understanding of what constitutes it, which also, you Leads into why it's often overlooked as a diagnosis because sometimes people have symptoms without a culturable microbe and mm, that's mm. part of that uh, diagnostic criterion as well and and sometimes people don't have the full extent of symptoms you know they can have you know an ongoing irritation or an erythema but they don't have a discharge or they have a discharge but they don't have those other classic inflammatory signs mm. and that all still fits under the banner of recurrent or chronic even um, vulvovaginal candidiasis because there's a spectrum of severity yeah. that goes with recurrent rash as well
0: with with this whole subject being such a pain point, literally, for so many women, why do you think that it hasn't been identified before as an important area of study? I mean, it just kind of baffles me in a way that it, it hasn't been highlighted before now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is baffling. And there's certainly uh, some heroes working in that space and have been in that space for a long time doing research, looking at case studies and things like that over long periods of time. So it is there, but I think it's chipping away in the background. And from... clinical practice perspective when we look at mainstream medicine, Mm. you know, a lot of these very recurrent pictures are not something that are seen in some aspects of, you know, hospital-based gynecology, for example. So it's more of a private practice point. And so it's about what is on the radar and what the burden of that is as well. And now we're only just obviously coming to this new understanding of what microbiome health is. And Mm. and we have a lot more information on bacterial microbiome health than we do fungal microbiome health and yeah. and that fits into that and there are various factors and obstacles and understanding the fungal microbiome in terms of just testing and databases and all of those other things so we've got it's a journey and it's improving every year I see more and more and we get really excited about how many <laughs> people are interested in this and we've seen more startups you know who are interested in that but it's it's one of those things I guess it still falls under that banner of women's health mm. and there there are acknowledged areas in that. And from a research perspective, and now from running a clinical trial, there's a lot of obstacles when you're dealing with people that have menstrual cycles and and you're dealing with vaginal health because you know we're timing an, an intervention with somebody's menstrual cycle and you've got to wait for it to come around. And then you've got to recruit them in at the right time. And then Obviously, things happen like sex and morning yeah. after pills, etc. So, there's lots of possible
0: reasons why it's too hard. <laughs> yeah, I can. I mean, you know, a lot of research has been done on male rodents and males for a reason because as women, we have these fluctuating hormones and all these other things ca- that can happen. So, I can't, I can just imagine the logistics are massive.
1: Yeah, totally. And particularly when you're looking at longer term studies as well because you know a lot can happen over nine months of, of using an intervention or you know following people so it, it becomes really problematic and when you've got something that's much more predictable and consistent to research and that's generally safer, I think, in terms of that perspective. But it's also because it's probably not talked about. So the severity of it is not that well acknowledged because even the people that have it Mm. are reluctant to talk about it and to talk about its impacts because of various levels of taboo associated with it.
0: Yeah, it it definitely is a topic that you have to have some very direct questions with when you're working with women so that you get the answers that you need. Um, Now, I'd really love to to discuss how estrogen affects the vaginal microbiome. I mean, clinically, we see this at different points of the menstrual cycle, you know, with patients more likely to get outbreaks of thrush during their period and then less likely to get outbreaks around ovulation. But how does estrogen fit into that and the susceptibility for infections?
1: Yeah, so estrogen is probably one of the most important hormones to consider when we're talking about vaginal microbiome health. And its relationship is to the cellular health in terms of how many, or how what the density of epithelial cells are within mm-hmm. the vaginal space, and therefore the expression of glycogen, um, which is the fuel that, via some amylases, becomes a fuel for those lactobacillus bacteria. So their survival is dependent upon uh, good levels of estrogen, good cell expression of glycogen. Mm-hmm. So when we look at lactobacillus or lactobacilli microbes, we talk about them as a very Overarching concept is being associated with vaginal health. And as an area, as a microbiome, we have less diversity because we tend to see dominance of lactobacillus and some low level microbes. Mm -hmm. And that's good. And that's, you know, that's eubiosis as far as the vagina is concerned for most people. There are exceptions. Mm -hmm. Um, So, this estrogen rhythm that we have, we see as being really important to correlate to lactobacillus. So when we have stages of life or even stages of the menstrual cycle mm. where estrogen may be lower, then theoretically lactobacillus may be challenged or their numbers may not be as robust or mm. they may not be fed as well, yeah. essentially. And so infection risk for bacteria becomes higher or dysbiosis risk for bacteria becomes higher yeah. at those stages. So when we look at premenstrual menstruation um, and, and then early Obviously, until estrogen starts to peak again, those time points become uh, more common for people, for example, who have bacterial vaginosis because the estrogen and the lactobacillus equation, when we have BV or bacterial vaginosis, that is characterized by a loss of lactobacillus and an overgrowth of so facultative anaerobic um, microbes, so things mm. like Gardnerella, for example. So we can think about estrogen over a lifespan, where you know we have pre-puberty, then the microbiome will be different and not as lactobacillus dominated. Mm-hmm. We move into more estrogen dominant stages of life, pregnancy, menstruation. So there'd be more lactobacillus overall, and then as we move towards perimenopause and menopause, we start to see that um, relationship decline because the estrogen declines and the lactobacillus are not as prevalent or they start to disappear and the microbiome becomes more diverse. So we have these sort of macro-micro situations. We have stage of life journeys and Mm. then we have a menstrual cycle itself. So understanding that rhythm of hormones helps us to understand possible fluctuations that can occur, particularly in people that already have symptoms because their disorder becomes more pronounced at different stages because there usually are some sort of hormonal rhythm issues as well for those people.
0: Yeah, and I think a great point here is discussing those very facts with patients and so they can really understand why their body is more susceptible at certain points in their lifespan or their menstrual cycle, and they can really become more empowered in that rather than feeling like they're at the whim of these symptoms randomly. Oh, totally. And I
1: mean, tracking, symptom tracking is one of the most important things you can do for people to recognise their own rhythms and risk points. Mm. Um, It helps you to, A, identify what could be going on. It helps you to also apply any prophylactic therapy if you're looking to, you know, stop a cycle of recurrency. You start by addressing it right before or in that time period they're moving into a riskier period for them. So understanding those patterns and they previously may never have been aware of those patterns mm. can really help to empower them because they might know, oh, it's safer to have sex at this time of the month because I generally don't get symptoms then. And it's only when I start to see that rhythm changing either less estrogen in the case of things like bacterial vaginosis or mm-hmm. aerobic vaginitis or more estrogen, which can become a fuel for fungal microbes. So with thrush, we see ovulation through the middle teal sort of being a riskier time point where it's mm-hmm. actually not just the estrogen, but it's the relationship between the estrogen and the progesterone and, and what that does in that situation to influence or create an environment that's more favorable
0: to some of those more fungal-based microbes. Right. Well, talking about microbes, let's, let's dive in. I would love you to tell us a little bit about Lactobacilli crispatis. So a 2020 review stated it was widely regarded as the best marker for vaginal microbiome health due to its proficiency in producing lactic acid and hydrogen peroxide. But can you tell us a little bit more about this bacteria?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is one of those ones that people tend to focus in on as being the one they have to have.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, it is an important microbe and it is probably the king of lactic acid and hydrogen peroxide production, which means it's environmental control in terms of pH Mm -hmm. and inhibition of other you know, opportunistic microbes is much better than some of the other lactobacilli species that can inhabit that space. But when we look at it, not everybody will be able to hold Lactobacillus crispatus in their microbiome, nor should they be able to, because mm-hmm. we also know with microbiomes that there are a vagina microbiomes that there are different categories, I guess they're called community state types. So they're different profiles that people can fit into, and they refer to the most dominant type of lactobacillus that they might have, or a lack of lactobacillus dominance for some of those community state types. Mm-hmm. So we seem to have a lot of research that's focusing in on lactobacillus crispatus, both in supplemental form and in general, in terms of you know, native carriage of this as a species associated mm-hmm. with different health traits like. Being able to conceive, for example, or being less likely to have a fungal infection or less likely to have bacterial vaginosis. Mm -hmm. But it's not everything, I think, because there are also some research that suggests some lactobacillus crispatus may be problematic or that too much of it is also a problem because we see this significant lack then for shifting of diversity in the other direction Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a condition called cytolytic vaginosis where some of the newer research coming through suggests that it may be a lactobacillus crispatus overgrowth Um, and and there are different reasons why people may end up with a lot of this like it can be there's it's um, they believe it's hereditary in that you can have crispartis coming through generations of people from obviously your mother and your grandmother, mm. etc. cetera. And that's a really strong and robust microbiome. But we sometimes we see this microbe turn up in excess because there's been over-treatment or there's been a loss of some of those other more diversifying microbes within the microbiome. So it, it's Interesting, and I think it's going to be a watch this space because we have some conflicting information about chryspartis in both, you know, general health and then special subsets as well of research in terms of fertility, or with the work we're doing in terms of recurrent thrush, for example. Chryspartis mm-hmm. is something that we're focusing in on for that very reason in terms of over treatment, and you know, is that moving through and becoming more of a cytolytic type picture?
0: Yeah, it's it's just so fascinating. But it also, it it once again, you know, reinforces that point that it is about balance um, when it comes to any kind of microbiome. Heading into this interview, I was reading a 2019 study on around 300 women that showed an increased rate of IVF success if they had more than 60% lactobacillus crispatus. But as you say, it's not always a good thing to have too much. But what do you think is the actual mechanism here of how that impacts IVF success?
1: Yeah, uh, there's been a few studies around *Crispatus* and um, IVF and what's on the catheter tip, for example, hmm. when they do you know the embryo transfer. And the, the *Lactobacillus crispatus* situation is very interesting because I think when we look at one of those research papers, it suggests that if you actually have higher amounts, that there's a less chance of implantation. Okay. Um, whereas less than 60. And lactobacillus dominance is actually conducive to achieving pregnancy. So, mm-hmm. and and I think when we look at the type of people who are in need of assisted reproductive technologies, that there's a whole array of different health conditions that have led them there. Yeah. And with that comes a history as well of treatment and antimicrobial use and all of these other things that we need to consider in addition to hormonal issues. So. It's an interesting thing to evaluate. And I was looking at that 2019 study and sort of trying to understand because they had this, you know, almost opposing thing where they were talking about lactobacillus inas also being associated with pregnancy outcomes. Mm-hmm. And inas is another one of those things that we don't really, well, we have an opinion on it that it's a lactobacillus and therefore it has some benefit, but it tends to show up when there's transitioning going on or it's a bit of a rescuer. So we don't know if it's actually good or bad or what it still is and there's possibly it's all of those things depending upon the strain specificity of it yeah. but the overall when we look at lactobacillus dominance it doesn't necessarily matter which microbe it is although there are also some other ones that are less like ginseng i their mechanism is you know that the ability of them to produce lactic acid and hydrogen peroxide is about environmental immune control that mm-hmm. they are production of metabolites and bacteriocins are about inhibition of pathogens and therefore decrease of inflammation within that area. So all of these things are conducive, obviously, to successful pregnancy and not immune activation at that point as well. So, you know, overall, a healthy microbiome, as I said, largely in this space is lactobacillus dominant and, and pH regulated, etc. But I suspect when we look at that uh, opposing result where they were talking about over 60% lactobacillus crispatus having a slight reduction in pregnancy outcome, then it may also be because we know looking at pH and what role that can play around pregnancy and that natural fluctuation of pH around different points of the menstrual cycle for obviously helping sperm and egg meet each other, et cetera. Yeah. So there's lots of things I think that we don't fully understand and sometimes focusing in on these singular microbes can mean we miss the bigger picture. But it is nice, those sort of studies that do the whole microbiome profile because we get to see these sort of traits and shifts and and it gives us this understanding that obviously we don't want people, if they're already in that situation and having issues with um, reproduction, that we don't mm-hmm. want them to have other types of anaerobes dominating their microbiome and that generally they need to have lactobacillus at a good amount to have that stability and to have that healthy microbiome to be able to enhance their um, outcomes.
0: Yeah, And, and looking at endometrial receptivity and the microbiome, like, Is there a role there for dysbiosis and inflammatory changes in driving progesterone resistance? I mean, I truly realise we're just at the tip of the iceberg on all of this. You know, over the next few years, we're going to see so much more information coming through. But, But what are your thoughts on the microbiome and the endometrial receptivity? side of things?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I mean, it's not something I've spent a lot of time thinking about because my space is not necessarily fertility driven all the time. Yeah, But I, I do think that when we look at the endometrium and what we know on a microbiome level of both the endometrial microbiome and the vaginal microbiome is that they are connected in an upstream from the vagina to the endometrium and yeah. that they have common traits amongst them and that we certainly have information in situations like endometriosis for example where there are microbiome profiles of the endometrium that are inflammatory and driven by microbes that are not conducive as well to Mm. implantation and fertility. So within that when we look at what we know about um, endometrial receptivity and progesterone resistance that there are these common markers of inflammatory changes and of t-cell reactions and the suggestion that that sort of resistance is aligned with hallmarks of some endometriosis pictures as well. I think that the microbiome is definitely implicated. Mm. I just don't think we have the details of how exactly at this point. And that the, even the research on the endometrial microbiome talking about its role in fertility is still in its infancy. But I mean, it's certainly going to be an interesting space to watch. And as it comes to light, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to be both excited and amazed and
0: also, <laughs> mm, I thought so. <laughs> I I'm sure that's going to be the case. Uh, it is a fascinating area because it's constantly evolving, uh, you know, as the research comes out and just like your PhD is going to contribute an enormous amount of data to our knowledge bank, uh, we're constantly learning in this space. Yeah, so interesting. Now, looking at bacterial vaginosis, you know, it is treated with antibiotics, which are effective for short-term relief. But a 2020 review showed that 25% of women experience a recurrence within four weeks and up to 50% of women experience a recurrence within three months. So as a clinician, you know, how can we get better results for our patients? Because, you know, those stats are horrid. They're, They're really so poor I mean how can we get better results for our patients
1: they are poor and and bacterial vaginosis is one of well it is the most commonly clinical presenting genitourinary infection out of all of them so thrush Mm. is the second even though most people will talk about thrush or tell you that they've had thrush but may not be able to identify that they've had bv um the trick, I think, we, as clinicians in how we can get better results for our patients is to recognise those statistics and understand that you know, a once-off occurrence of BV is likely to result in a recurrence. And, and if they're not treated effectively or considering the whole microbiome and the influences on that microbiome that led them to that outbreak or that issue in the first place, mm. then we're not going to get long-term results. So, the key with addressing recurrency in BV is to consider the lactobacillus situation because okay. the definition of BV is a loss of lactobacillus, this you know, tipping of the seesaw where we have the overgrowth of facultative anaerobes like Gardnerella vaginatus or Adipobium or Prevotella, mm-hmm. and this decrease of lactobacillus or disappearance in some cases as well. And so, even though a lot of the research tells us when people when BV is treated with metronidazole, for example, we see a recovery of lactobacillus quite quickly, mm-hmm. the longer term research tells us that that also doesn't hold mm-hmm. for people. Okay. Um, and so, we need to assess the why. The why did this person end up there? What is in their lifestyle that might be influencing the vaginal microbiome? What sort of hormonal factors could be going on and addressing as many of those touch points as possible, including partners. Because mm. we also know with BV, particularly recurrent BV, that if they have a male or a female partner, those things need to be considered. And when it comes down to male partners, there's actually some really interesting research where you can predict bacterial vaginosis incidence by the penile microbiome of a male partner.
0: Fascinating. So this is-
1: translocation thing yeah. that's going on between partners so the restoration of lactobacillus or making that vaginal microbiome resilient and robust again post-antibiotic treatment or if we're looking at recurrency as a treatment in itself is really key to breaking the cycle of BV because it will just keep shifting out. So, you know, for me that it means that I generally will address sexual interaction and modify that while Mm. we can so that we're limiting that disturbance factor. Anything that will disturb pH because once we disturb pH, it's also an opportunity for these microbes to increase. So that includes... Ejaculative sex or lubricants, or if they are douching or irrigating, that may not be the best thing for them at that time. Mm. Using soaps, for example, assessing workout gear, underwear. Um, I mean, so many things in just lifestyle oriented stuff can impact recovery. It's not necessarily the only thing, but it's going to make it harder if they keep flipping back into disorder. And then looking at where it occurs. In a cycle, if I mm. have a menstrual cycle, because again, that helps you understand what microbial shifts could be going on and their relationship to hormones and whether that needs to be addressed for an
0: individual. And do you think that tracking, you know, generally tracking for three months is a good amount of time to see some patterns? Like it would just be good to have a time frame that we can give to patients upfront of how long we would like them to track their symptoms for to find some patterns. Generally, within a month,
1: you've got a pretty good data set to understand. And in my experience, most people are happy to continue to track Mm -hmm. ongoing because it's interesting for them. And then they also become empowered because they can see that pH drop. I mean, sorry, rise above 4.5, which generally is moving into dysbiosis and BV territory. Yeah. So they can understand to act as well. If you've given them strategies that they can utilize at home to move things back into range really quickly, then they can do that because they've seen it move out. So it means it doesn't progress because the microbiome just needs to be continuously shifted back, reminded
0: <laughs> it yeah. needs to be
1: in range to prevent this cycle from you know occurring. We need to give it time to recover. We need that, you know, endogenous or native lactobacillus to be able to grow back up and to be able to stabilize. And that doesn't happen if you're constantly moving into B V or you're challenging The pH on a regular basis, so tracking is a really useful, you know, cost-effective tool that's empowering for people. And certainly, you need to consider nervous system burden because Mm. it's not for everyone. But in those people, I mean, ideally for pH, for the first month, I ask people to do it daily. But not everyone is going to do that, and and I don't know if I would because I'm not that sort of person. But you know, ideally. Then test when you have symptoms. Test at least, you know, in the follicular, ovulatory, luteal phases at least once if you can. Yeah. If you feel an eagle, have a discharge, notice an odour, test um, yeah. because it's going to give you that pattern so
0: that you understand as well. And a clinical question what is the most efficient way for a woman to test her pH balance? How does she actually do it?
1: You can get different types of litmus pH paper needs Mm -hmm. to be low range. So it needs to cover essentially the ideal pH range for a vagina, which is anywhere from 3.8 to Mm 4.5, but it also needs to go above that. And it needs to be at least 0.5 increments so that you can get those subtle shifts of 0.5 to understand that because there is a difference between 4.5 and 5 when we're looking at vaginal pH. So if you go from 4 to 5 on your scale, you're going to miss that. And then generally, just either if it's a roll or a strip, you just there's two different ways. I tend to advise people to do it. They can mm-hmm. use little cotton tips and do a self swab and apply that to the paper. Okay. Although that's not always super effective for um, conditions where there is less discharge or it's a pastier, drier discharge, which mm-hmm. tends to fall into that recurrent thrush picture more than anything.
0: Okay.
1: Um. Otherwise, they can fold the paper and scoop it around the inside of the vaginal canal and Mm -hmm. then read the paper from there and again that may not be appropriate for people that have vaginismus or if they're highly reactive and highly atopic as well you need to be really aware of what people's triggers are before you get them to do any of those things but it can be quite straightforward For people that have quite significant vaginismus or vulvodynia Mm. but are seeing pelvic physiotherapists, I will often just get them to be part of that visit to that pelvic physio that they get their pH done and recorded
0: while they're doing all the other exams. Yeah, well, some super useful clinical tips there, Moira. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Now, I'd like to talk about the role of vaginal microbiome testing in clinic. So, you know, what are your thoughts on it and when is the most appropriate day of the cycle to test?
1: Yeah, I mean, vagina microbiome testing is a very useful tool for us, particularly in atypical presentations, recurrent presentations that aren't responding to therapy, or if the people have been told that everything's normal when it's clearly not, Yeah, then there's a good role for vaginal microbiome testing, because we get an insight into microbes that possibly aren't culturable or are not reported upon in standard gram stain culture and microscopy. hmm so it can be useful to understand that, and it can also be useful to understand the vaginal microbiome in both health and disorder. Yeah. So you get a baseline, essentially, of what microbes are there, and then by understanding pH fluctuations, you can make some judgments around what could be shifting and changing over the course of a menstrual cycle
0: Okay.
1: based on what you already know is living within that microbiome. But generally, if we're going to get the most bang for our buck with the vagina microbiome test, yeah. um, it does relate to what the most appropriate day of the cycle is to test. And that is dependent upon the individual. Okay. So for me, I get people to test when they're symptomatic because that's the shift I want to understand okay. in most people. Unless they're coming to me for general maintenance or, for example, fertility and they're not necessarily symptomatic, then you would be testing around you know, when you're trying to conceive. Okay, You know, around ovulation, mid-cycle, or sometimes even just understanding an early cycle. So there's not necessarily a right and wrong, but for people that have recurrent imbalance or infection tendencies, you want to test when they're symptomatic so that you can get a snapshot of what's going on in disorder for them.
0: Yeah, I think it's you know, it's a fairly new area in clinical practice and, and a lot of practitioners out there may not have started doing this or may be a little unsure, but I think that gives us some really clear clinical guidelines that we want to test our patients when they're symptomatic, especially if they're getting recurrent symptoms. But if they're coming in for generalised support and possibly preconception, then around ovulation is going to be the best time for them to do that microbiome testing yeah that's what i've worked out so (laughs) far. beautiful now i want to discuss some simple and some practical tips to support both the uterine and the vaginal microbiome what are some tips that you can share with us
1: I think that when we're looking at it from a clinic perspective or we're hmm. talking to clients around it, they, the best tip is to actually have the discussion um, <laughs> and then to go into a lot of lifestyle stuff. I mean, most people, when they have recurrent issues, will tell you, I've done all the things, I've changed my underwear, I've, you know, don't wash with soap, et cetera. So hmm. a lot of that is generally covered. But there is a lot of other things and the nitty-gritty detail that you need to understand so you can help somebody modify and identify what their risks may be. So things like lubricant, for example, and ensuring and that your lubricant is pH or osmolar correct so it's not damaging to the environment not damaging to your cells. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people aren't aware of that. And sometimes even if they are using barrier methods, they may not be aware that some barrier methods have casein in them and that could mm. be problematic if they have you know, issues with dairy proteins, or yeah. if they are atopic, that can also be a problematic factor. Okay. So some of those really practical things that are not even involving ingestion therapies or vaginally implied therapies—it's just about what you're doing every day that could be challenging um, this environment. And and I think because we you know have this higher use now of workout gear, for example, that's yeah. an area that probably needs to be explored. A little bit more directly as well, because most people will say, "Oh, I've changed my underwear and it's all natural," but then they're putting themselves into some, you know, semi-recycled plastic bottle-like pants, and (laughs) um, you know, and that's not breathable. And they're in that, and they're sweating, and that can be a challenge for them, you know, in in different circumstances. Yeah. Um, So those sort of things, and then of course we need to also be brave enough to ask questions around sexual habits with people, yes, um, to understand that as well, because there are certainly practices that maybe people are not aware of that they could be doing or not doing that could be challenging the environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're never going to know about those unless we ask about it. So Mm. we have to be aware and certainly encourage people to be more mindful of their genitourinary and sexual health and even things like STI screening for example um, is something that a lot of people will not have done regularly or it had particularly in an older age group it may not have crossed their mind that that's Mm. something that they need to even consider you know that once the risk of pregnancy is decreased sometimes you know the flag to go and get an STI screen also disappears so these sort of things are just discussions that we can do to look after the microbiome I mean anything Essentially, that is shifting or changing the environment needs to be screened for because if you don't change those things, mm-hmm. then anything you're doing is not going to necessarily have or it's going to be harder to get that change you need in that space.
0: Yeah, there's so many factors there, but some really, really good tips. And I think you're right in clinical practice, you know, no amount of information is um, too small or no question should not be asked. So, you know, sometimes we just have to have those really honest conversations with our patients too, because sometimes they might not want to discuss their sex life with you, but it is important.
1: Yeah, it is important. And I think there's various ways to approach that. I mean, even though people come to me specifically for help with their genitourinary health, I have mm. a screening questionnaire that also asks a lot of those questions already so that I understand you know, where they're at and you know, what type of partner or partners that they have, etc. cetera. So that, you know, A, we're not sort of limited. I mean, they know I'm going to be asking those sort of questions. And I do always let people know I'm going to be asking you some very personal questions mm. and you know, I do apologize, but the, the need for me to know means that I can help you. So uh, often even just explaining that, and because it's such new territory for so many people and that mm. they've not even been brave enough to discuss their vaginal symptoms most of the time, and, yeah. and then you're there asking them about what sort of sex they're having and how many people they're having it with and what type of lubricant they're using yeah. and what their hygiene um, factors are around that, um, it can be a bit confronting. So you do need to ease into it. But I think that most people ex- um, appreciate that really frank discussion. As well, because they're probably worrying at the back of their mind, is there something that I'm doing? I mean, a lot of mm. people are looking for the the factor or blaming themselves. And there are things to be found, but sometimes to find nothing is also confirms some of our diagnostic pathways as well.
0: Yeah, so I think the pre-frame is a great idea and explaining to them that the information that you're asking for could be very helpful in determining what treatment you're going to recommend for them. What about foods that can influence the vaginal microbiome. What food should we be eating?
1: Gosh, when we look at this on a, a research level, there's not a lot of information. Mm. There's certainly um, links between glycemic load and diets and vaginal microbiome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, looking at that overall healthy diet. And we do know that even though the vaginal microbiome is an independent microbiome site, it does still interact with the gastrointestinal on some levels. It's not probably to the extent you would and that they're not so similar that you yeah. can predict one microbe in one space to the other. But their relationship is still linked in terms of anything that you would do to support microbial health for the gastrointestinal system will improve microbial health for the vagina microbiome. So getting people to clean up their diets and mm-hmm. to remove anything that you think might be a problem food or a glycemic trigger is really important. And then sometimes in specific genitourinary disorders you're looking for um, going down rabbit holes and looking at things like oxalates for example but mm-hmm. it tends to be something that i don't do straight away because that sort of restriction or elimination diet is a pretty big change and if it's not necessary then it's not necessary so whole food diets are probably my answer to that and and you know abundant colors and polyphenols and plant fibers and anything really that you would associate with microbial health in other sites.
0: Yeah, that's very sound advice. And I do like the angle of the glycemic load and just, you know, watching those blood sugar levels as well. Um, Now, you have quite a lot of different roles. You're in clinical practice, you're in research, you're in education. How do you balance those three hats that you wear?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. (laughs) I I think that I'm very good at segmenting. um, And and they are all related, obviously, um, but I'm mindful of what I do on what days. And uh, I'm not in full-time clinical practice because I Mm. am in full-time PhD. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I have, you know, set times that I do things and I, I'm very mindful as well not to promise things I can't necessarily deliver. Okay. Um, so I've gotten much better at that and I also don't put pressures on myself to, for example, deliver a treatment plan straight away. I have a set amount of hours, you know, or days that you will get this through on this day if you see me on this day. Okay. So that I allow myself time to do that. I do, however make sure that I mean I do work hard I get up early in the morning and I will do work in the morning or edit or do some referencing and do Mm -hmm. those sort of things so being aware of what tasks I have and just chipping away at them essentially um, is is how I bring it all together and there's also you know outsourcing what you're not good at and not being afraid to say no and knowing where your boundaries are are all really important things as well.
0: Yeah, and I must say, you know, it takes a few years of clinical practice to work out how to do those, uh, you know, setting boundaries, saying no. So it takes time to become good at that side of, of, you know, work as well. Now, for those new graduates or practitioners that are looking to build their clinical practice, what's one tip that you would give them to build a successful clinical practice? Because clearly you are very successful, Moira.
1: Oh, thank you. Hmm. Um, it took a while <laughs> and 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 I think that that's okay. Um, you don't need to know everything straight away. I don't think you ever need to know everything. There's always the internet and there's always books and mm. there's always good mentoring that you can access. Yes. Um, but I do think you need to be aware that you need to put in effort to be a success at anything and also that there's a, a whole lot of mindset and, and associated with this profession particularly mm-hmm. and what it means to make money from it or to be successful mm. and there are lots of different ideas around that and there's some of them are not true. Yeah. Um so you need to be okay and and work through those blocks and think about what you really want. I mean, I think at at the core of it we get into this job because we want to help people and you know, mm. we want to help people heal and and travel along their life journey. And I think that that's a really wonderful thing to go into a job for, but we also as humans need to survive and we need to make you know, a living, and if you want to do that in the job that you love, you also need to be okay with that. It took a while <laughs> to work through that. I think, I mean, I remember not being very good at rebooking people or okay. uh, asking for money, you know, mm-hmm. for my services, and, and you have to sort of be okay with those things.
0: <laughs> yeah, you do. You, you absolutely do because um, we want to stay in clinical practice and that means we have to be able to pay our mortgages, our rent, or whatever it uh-huh. is. We, we need to be able to do that as well.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, there's wonderful things out there now to support us. You know, certainly booking systems and automations and mm. all of those sort of things. That once upon a time, you know, I had a big diary on my desk that I would scribble in and write people's names on, and it was all very manual. And now it's all very automatic, and so I can take myself out of a lot of those uncomfortable situations that maybe, maybe previously I was not very good at. Mm. Um, so I think that's also a really important part of building practice as well is, you know, identifying which bits make you squeamish and, <laughs> and really examining the why yes. of it. Yeah. But also being aware that, you know, in terms of this particular career or professional or trajectory that you've chosen, that let it evolve. Because I certainly don't think I would ever be here. I remember speaking to somebody um, once and they told me, oh, you'll be in women's health and hmm. I was like no I won't that's the <laughs> last area I want to be in you know we went through our only you know personal fertility journey etc and even at the end of that I didn't want to have a bar yeah, yeah. Doing any of it. Um, but this area excited me and, and it took a while to find me so don't feel like you have to niche straight away but if there is an area that you enjoy just work away at that and it doesn't mean that you limit or yourself to not seeing other types of people because I certainly still have diverse patients and they're not all female mm. and you know things constantly surprise me that end up across my desk so you're not limiting yourself by deciding
0: you want to sort of work in one area but you also don't have to just work in one area well we are all very glad that you are working in that one area and and you know being that uh, person at the front that we can all learn from. So thank you, Maura, for joining us today and oh. taking us through how we can best support the urinary microbiome. I mean, it's definitely an area that has been somewhat a bit taboo in the past, and so many practi- practitioners don't have a lot of knowledge in this area. So thank you so much for sharing simple, practical and actionable tips with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Did you know Bioceuticals has a clinic-only range developed for exclusive use by clinicians? This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Biosteuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit biosteuticals.com.au to learn more.